This is Arab Talk on KPOO 89.5 FM in San Francisco. This is Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal. I'm Jess Ghanem. And I'm Jamal Dejani. Uh, Jamal, here we are again, uh, smack in the middle of basically red alert when it comes to the pandemic, uh, not only in the United States, but in California, which is experiencing probably one of the worst outbreaks not only in the United States, but uh, in the entire world right now, Southern California, with respect to the pandemic, is essentially getting close to zero ICU beds available, and the numbers of cases are increasing rather dramatically. So we will continue to report and uh, get Arab talk out, even though we're, you know, we're we're still quarantining and, you know, and self-lockdown here in Northern California, but the situation remains very grave. We will talk about that on the uh, on the backside of the show today. In the meantime, there's still lots of interesting political things going on, to say the least, with the Biden administration continuing to attempt its transition in spite of the Trump administration's reluctance, or we should say Trump himself, his reluctance to actually concede, which he has not done, and it's unlikely that he will. There's still lots of different discussions that we could be having about what we can expect from the Biden administration. We have a really great interview today from Hueda Araf, who's going to give us some insight into that. That's right, Jess. Uh, just uh, briefly, we spoke to Hueda earlier, and Hueda was part of the delegates that went to the Democratic Convention uh, of Arab Americans, basically trying to get a seat on that table. And uh, we spoke to her, as you recall, uh, before. And now, after it is, uh, of course, uh, pretty much guaranteed that uh, January 20th, uh, Biden will be sworn in. And so what are the expectations for Arab Americans? Uh, that's what we asked her. What are they looking from a Biden-Harris administration? Uh, let's watch. Support for President Trump's attempt to overturn his election loss began to collapse in the Senate on Monday after the Electoral College certified President-elect Joseph R. Biden's Jr.'s victory, with many top Republicans saying the time had come to recognize results that have been evident for four weeks. Our guest, Huayda Raf, was a delegate from Michigan at the Democratic National Convention, She's a Palestinian-American human rights attorney and activist. Welcome again uh, to Arab Talk, Hawaii. Thank you, Jamal. It's good to be with you. Now that it's pretty certain that Joe Biden will be sworn in as president of the United States on January 20th, what are your expectations from a Biden administration vis-a-vis -vis Arab and Muslim Americans? Will there be any uh, significant changes? Well, you know, in this kind of um, transition period, Biden hasn't really said anything of, of significance as concerns uh, Palestinian issues or larger Arab American issues that is different from what he was saying before he got elected. And so there hasn't been much of a difference. And there wasn't a lot of expectation that Biden would be so great anyway. I think the concern for a lot in the community was to vote Trump out because Trump was absolutely disastrous. But most of um, you know the, the Palestinian American community and the Arab American community, I think at large, was under no illusion that um, 
a Biden president or a Biden administration would be all that much better. At best, probably take us back to uh, a Obama type era, which was not that great. It was pursuing specifically as concerns, you know, the um, freedom for Palestinians, pursuing the the same policy that the American administration had for decades, which was uh, kind of silently underwriting Israel's expansionist plans. Trump rushed to kind of solidify all of that, but um, and we look forward to Biden reversing some of the most disastrous of of Trump's plans. But um, I, I don't think we're taking anything for granted, and we need to hold the Biden administration accountable for some of the promises that were made, which were not all of that great. They were better than Trump's policies, but um, and continue to mobilize to push him even further than than he's gone or seems willing to go, because in the end. Uh, specifically for Palestine and for a lot of the family members of Palestinian Americans, it's it's life or death. So we need to we we don't expect a lot. We expect it to be better than um, than Trump, and that's not saying all of that much. But we are going to keep mobilizing to push for better. Now he's coming across, at least in the early appointments. Uh, presenting a diverse, uh, you know, administration. And that's what they're basically flaunting. They're saying, you know, we're appointing, you know, from all different races, different groups to his administration, including a a recent appointment of a Palestinian-American in a key White House position, Rima Dodin was appointed as one of the two deputy directors for his legislative affairs team. Now that's created a, basically, you know, sparked a storm of political controversy on the Israeli lobby. They were, you know, immediately they were attacking her because she said she supported BDS or participated in a demonstration supporting BDS and supported terrorism and, you know, the standard kind of attack targeting uh, Palestinian Americans or those who are critical of Israel. But also Palestinians, some Palestinians criticized her because of her family's history. And, and you know, this, this part I don't care about, frankly, because I think you represent your own. It doesn't matter like what your father or what your grandparents did. But she was attacked because her 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 uh, family's history had a, uh, had a kind of a collaboration with the Israeli occupation on her I think grandfather's side. What's your take on this? Well, I I think the fact that um, she was appointed is a wonderful thing for the Palestinian and Arab community. It it is not enough. I hope to see some more appointments from members from our community. Certainly, that was one of the promises that. Um, the Biden campaign had made to Arab Americans that worked on the Biden campaign and to Arab Americans that met with the Biden campaign. Um, it, it, promises were made that there would be Palestinian slash Arab um, and Muslim American appointments. And so the appointments of Rima, I think, is a good start. And I agree with you very much. She stands on her own. I think she is has proven herself to be a, a brilliant and capable and active um, a person. 
uh, and a, a Palestinian was active in her school and college years. And of course, that's why we saw the attacks from the pro-Israel camp. But uh, she's qualified and she deserves to be there. And I'm happy that she is. I hope to see more. So you don't think that this was a token appointment, but this is a meaningful appointment? Because that's what uh, the Biden campaign has been uh, flaunting. I mean, his transition team looks diverse, right? And 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 they're addressing that early on, you know, we're going to have an Arab American on our team. You know, I think that the Biden um, campaign and now the Biden uh, transition team is probably doing a lot that is more for show than for substance. I don't think I would put that one, uh, the appointment of Rima uh, necessarily in that camp. But like I said, there needs to be more in order that this is not just you know, a, a symbolic or here, look, we appointed an, an Arab American. There are many positions to be filled and we have a very uh, talented and qualified community. Uh, and so there, I hope to see many more, like I said, appointments. But at the same time, I mean, with regard to appointments in general, yes, they are um, more diverse, let's say, than we've seen in previous administrations, but that there are some appointments also that are very, and of concerning, um, and and this is, for example, the uh, appointment of Tony Blinken as Secretary of State. Now, this probably was expected, but Blinken has some. You know, he's been in the game for decades. He has some very questionable uh, business interests, some conflicts of interest that skew his view already kind of coming into to this position. Specifically, I think what's well known is that he was a, a founding partner of this kind of boutique um, advisory uh, lobbying group called West, West Exec Advisors. Uh, sorry, it's a consulting firm. And one of their clients is this Israeli company on which, you know, Israeli former uh, intelligence officers serve on the board and, and were founding members. Uh, and therefore, I think that that, even though he might step back from it in order to take up his position as Secretary of State, you still have those connections and you still have people that are ingrained in, in this kind of militaristic thinking with um, certain individuals. And when we're coming to talk about policy, you have people that are kind of very already set in their way and set in a very concerning way that is uh, counter to our the, the Arab American, the Palestinian American uh, community. Um, and other appointments, again, like I say, that are concerning. But in terms of um, Rima, I think that that was a, a good choice. And I hope to see more so that it's not only symbolic. And, it's, and if it is, if it is, I think that um, Biden should be held accountable because he had a lot of... Um, Arab Americans and Muslim Americans working to elect him. And not only, let me say from our community, um, a lot of progressive people in our society, the progressive wing of the Democratic Party that worked very hard to get Biden elected once he was the nominee of the Democratic Party. And I think his appointments need to also reflect that. And so far, um, 
it hasn't gone far enough. And I would say actually has been disappointing in, in disregarding the work that the progressive community have done. And I, I think I place a lot of the Palestinian Arab American community in that progressive wing as far as the, the uh, politics that we that we carry. Although, again, we're very diverse, but well, uh, I mean, you're absolutely right on, on this issue, and that's actually, this, it's a good segue uh, to my next question, because uh, the Arab, uh, Arab Americans and Muslim Americans supported Bernie Sanders. And uh, we've seen Biden uh, nominating or appointing just yesterday Pete Buttigieg, right? That's one of his rivals. But we have not seen him giving anything to Bernie Sanders. Is this a message? I mean... I mean, are the expectations because if you want a bridge between the uh, centrist and and the progressive uh, uh, po- uh, parts uh, uh, segments of the party, wouldn't you think that Bernie Sanders should be like center and front of these appointments to kind of bridge that gap? I do. At the same time, you know, there is this argument, and I don't know if I've seen Bernie Sanders speak on it, but you know, there is this argument that you also need him fighting in the Senate, him and Elizabeth Warren. You need their voices in, and you need their power kind of in the Senate. So I'm not sure Bernie uh, Sanders' take on it, but certainly there are a lot of people that... Well, some people were interested in seeing him uh, getting appointed as Secretary of Labor. I think it, that would be phenomenal. But I... Again, I'm probably not going to speak to that one as much. He should be up there for consideration, and I haven't seen uh, anything around that. I also haven't heard him speak to it as far as, you know, what he would prefer, whether he sees his role more staying in the Senate and making sure that, uh, you know, hopefully the Democrats uh, take the Senate so that there can be some meaningful policies passed and it's not just an obstructionist game uh, for the next two years. But... Um, or whether he would like to uh, and sees himself serving in one of these um, appointed positions. Certainly he's qualified, if not him, then a number of people that have worked with and around him because uh, Bernie Sanders worked tirelessly, tirelessly day and night. Almost every other day I was invited to something that Bernie Sanders was hosting or speaking at in order to get Joe Biden elected. And if uh, Joe Biden is deliberately kind of disregarding him as he is with the, uh, which it seems to be the, the pro- progressive wing of the party, that is extremely disappointing. And then I think the party uh, should and will hold him accountable because for a lot of uh, of people that were not happy with the Biden being the nominee, but realized that they couldn't sit this one out because Trump was such a danger. Um, I think there was a, a public and a silent pledge between us and in our organizations that we're going to keep working. Getting Biden elected is just kind of the beginning of, mm-hmm. of getting rid of something that was totally disastrous. Um, but but Biden is not uh, ideal. He's not a friend to a lot of the issues that we have. And so we still have a lot of work to do. And, um, and we're going to keep doing it. But you're right. I mean, Bernie Sanders deserves a a position, an appointed position. I don't know if he'll get it. And I don't, and it could be because of uh, the disregarded administration kind of disregarding Bernie Sanders role, or it could be because it's, uh, they're serious about needing him in the Senate. I don't, have you heard Bernie Sanders speaking to this issue at all? 
And now, you know, Bernie Sanders never asked things for himself. But, in, you know, I mean, that's not his persona. I've heard supporters talking about, uh, you know, he should be appointed as a secretary of labor and he should be in the close circle of the Biden administration if you want to, like, as I said, bridge the gap between the progressives and the centrists in, in the party. And, uh, and that's uh, the progressives did play a major role in getting him elected. And that's, you know, that's what you do. You know, you reward people who worked with you and helped you. And if you want to unite the party, the Democratic Party, uh, you're not going to win a re-election. And, and so that would be, you know, just in my opinion, a strategic move that uh, Joe Biden should do and not kind of like worry too much about the democratic machine that once, you know, Bernie Sanders is a socialist. We don't want to have that image associated with the socialist, you know, the kind of a standard thing that they do. But I want to talk also now about uh, foreign policy because, uh, you know, the Obama uh, Biden administrations gets an F on foreign policy when it comes to the Middle East. And you're absolutely right. You know, outside when uh, President Obama early on went and spoke in Cairo. He had this beautiful and, and lofty speech that everybody loved about peace and harmony. And, and then after that, really, you know, with uh, what's happening in Yemen now, uh, the drone attacks, what happened in Afghanistan, even Iraq, the Palestinian-Israeli conflict after he criticized uh, Israel and Benjamin and Netanyahu really right came right in his face and spoke in a joint House of Congress, which was a total insult right in Washington, D.C. He remained very silent and nothing has moved forward. And now we saw the aftermath with, with, with Trump moving the embassy into Jerusalem Annexing and recognizing the Golan Heights, allowing, you know, settlers to move in and recognizing them in the West Bank. Can Biden clean up Trump's Israeli-Palestinian policy mess? That's the question. I think he certainly can. The question is, is there the political will to do it? And that's where you know, we come in, the community, the activists, the American people at large, because the U.S. foreign policy as concerns uh, that part of the world, and specifically with Israel and Palestine, has been disastrous, has been in uh, contradiction to international law, and in, in conflict with the, you know, ideals that this country claims to represent and that goes around preaching. And so therefore, um, Biden can, he should start with, you know, issuing um, executive orders to reverse some of the disastrous Trump policies, the recognition of Jerusalem as Israel's united capital, um, moving the embassy uh, although he's already said he does not plan to move the embassy back to Tel Aviv, but we'll kind of see about that. Re the uh, recognition of the Golan, as you mentioned, and some other ones that got maybe a little bit less attention, but are really significant. Uh, for example, there has been a um, uh, a ban, let's say, on, on U.S. tax money going into investments in illegal settlements. And 
the Trump administration led by Ambassador David Friedman lifted that restriction. So now U.S. tax dollars can go to supporting a project in illegal Israeli settlements. Now, this is in direct conflict with a policy that Biden was actually part of at the end of the Obama administration, and it's to refrain from um, vetoing the UN Security Council resolution that declared Israeli settlement as being contrary to international law and called for their dismantlement. Uh, and when something is uh, a violation of international law, you have uh, an obligation of all states not to recognize it and not to do anything to facilitate it. And now the uh, Obama administration was directly, um, it, it was a, a conscious, very kind of strategic policy that it took at the end of the Obama administration to refrain from vetoing UN Security Council resolutions as American administrations usually do. And so that passed unanimously with just one uh, abstention. So that is law that Israeli settlements are a violation of international law. I mean, it goes even beyond that. It, Israeli settlements are considered a war crime, and hopefully we will see the International Criminal Court take that up and start investigating these war crimes. But uh, in terms of the uh, Biden now, you, the incoming Biden administration, uh, hopefully it will respect the, the policy that it was part of in the Obama administration and quickly reverse these things that allow American investment in settlements. Uh, East Jerusalem is also considered occupied territory and therefore recognizing it as Israel's united capital also is contrary to uh, international law and international consensus minus Israel and therefore reversing that will be important. But beyond that, so to, to answer your question, yes, he can reverse it. Yes, I expect to see some Im immediate reversals and some reversals might take a little bit more pushing from us. Um, I'm hoping to see a legal memo to the Biden administration soon. I'm um, part of working on that, that will detail the legal arguments for reversing all Trump administration policies uh, that have been enacted vis-a-vis -vis, uh, Israel and Palestine. And then to even go beyond that and adopt a language that is more recognizing of Palestinian, not just human rights, but equal rights, uh, the right to live in freedom and dignity, and not to constantly make that right subject to you know, Israel's concerns. Um, and from there, we hopefully, I'm not optimistic, but it's certainly what we're going to keep working towards in, in moving the American administration to a um, a policy and, and uh, a position towards Palestine that is more in line with what we preach and with international law. It's going to take a lot of work, but that work I think is being done by a lot of people on the ground, not just Palestinians and Arabs and Muslims, but by a lot of various groups with which we've built coalitions that are fighting for equal rights and justice across the board for all people. And I think that these groups need to continue um, their uh, their work together to strengthen our voice and push for the real change that we want to see. Well, one, one of the most important issues, obviously, is human rights. And, and you're a human rights attorney. What can Palestinian Americans do and their supporters in this country to hold Israel accountable, to make the Biden administration really hold Israel accountable to the violation of human rights. As you know, just a few days ago, Israel, for I don't know what number of times this year, killed a 13-year-old boy. 
before that, they they killed an autistic young man, and they said, "Oh, sorry, it was a mistake." And we see this repeating itself time and time again. No condemnation, nothing, total silence. Uh, and of course, now the Israelis are taking advantage of the pandemic and, and people are just uh, not paying attention to what's going on on the ground. So how can we kind of make them accountable for all these crimes? You know, thank you for bringing that up because that is so important. Children are suffering uh, daily. And some things we hear about and some things we don't hear about, you know, for example, a, a nine-year-old boy a few months ago, Malik Isa, was coming out of a store after buying a snack after school and was shot in the eye by a, a, an Israeli bullet, a sponge tip bullet, but he lost his eye and now he is traumatized. He doesn't go to school. He has to have like a prosthetic eye that sometimes falls out and there's no accountability. His parents tried to sue in the court um, it, it, nothing. There, it, the sold charges against the soldiers were dismissed because the court said oh, there's not enough evidence, even though the soldier admit, admitted to firing his weapon. But this is the kind of uneven uh, justice that's administered by Israeli uh, injustice system, I call it. And this is in addition to the, the killings that you mentioned that take place way too often. All of the Palestinian kids that are arrested and held without charge or on very small uh, charges and maybe picking up a, a stone or, or throwing a rock and, they, and so years of their lives are gone in addition to the torture that they suffer. But what can Americans do about it? There is actually a very easy step that I hope everybody listening will, um, will, take, uh, will take something, uh, some action to, to help implement. You know, we have some um, friends in Congress, and those numbers are increasing, and this is a very positive thing. So I hope we continue to stay active to elect more people to Congress that um, are listening and are more willing to take uh, very principled stances on the issue of Palestinian human rights. One of the friends that we have now in Congress is Representative Betty McCollum, who has two bills right now that seek to hold Israel accountable. And we need more members of Congress to sign on as co-sponsors. One of those bills is um, 2407, HR 2407. And this would prevent any US aid. Of course, your listeners probably know the US government gives Israel $3.8 billion a year in taxpayer money. This bill would say none of that money is mm -hmm. to go toward the torture, ill treatment and imprisonment of Palestinian children. Um, right now, it only has a couple of dozen co-sponsors, but you can pick up your phone, call your member of Congress, write your member of Congress, meet with them, get them to co-sponsor. This is something that should not be controversial. U.S. funds should not go towards torturing and imprisoning children, period. Um, the other one is uh, House Resolution 8050, and this um, would prevent any U.S. aid being used to uh, support in any way uh, Israeli annexation of Palestinian land. And we know um, that Israel is daily annexing de facto kind of with their actions on the ground Palestinian land, but any kind of legal uh, annexation that takes place to sanction Israel by withholding funds. So it's HR 8050 and HR 2407 are two bills that are currently in Congress and will probably be reintroduced with the next Congress. And so 
just engaging with your elected representative and asking them to sign on to these could be a really powerful step in starting to hold Israel accountable because unfortunately we are so uh, complicit by the fact that so much of our tax dollars are allocated to Israel. It makes us very much involved and that also makes us able to do something about it. Huwaida Araf, thank you again for coming on Arab Talk. Thank you for having me, Jamal. That's the voice of Huwaida Araf, Arab-American activist, attorney, um, and delegate, you know, Democratic delegate. So she's in the know, Jamal. I I don't know. I'm I'm kind of curious about your opinion of it. You know you you know my perspective on this is that I tend to be even beyond skeptical about what the Biden Harris administration is going to be able to do, you know, especially in relation to Arab American um issues which are going to be confronting us, but Hueda has some really good insight into things. That's what I just and uh and especially of course uh well, you know, the couple of things we talked also about uh, that uh, the Biden administration uh, basically gave, uh, uh, hired uh, the first uh, Arab-American, Palestinian-American as part of its team, which is which is a good sign. There were some questions about it, but anyway, right. she talked about this. And then, uh, of course, uh, what to expect when it comes to the Middle East, when, when it comes to the uh, Palestinian and Israelis, because that's like something very important. Will Biden be able to reverse what the damages from Trump? I don't think he's going to, we talked about this, you and I, he's not going to move the embassy back into Tel Aviv. Uh, but there, there'll be a different uh, maybe approach to, to things. We'll have to, we'll have to wait and see. And then also Huwaida, which uh, I forgot to mention earlier, uh, she uh, spoke about the uh, continued and systematic attacks by the Israeli government on Palestinian children. And that's, you know, she is, uh, after all, a a human rights attorney. And that's something that she is uh, very much interested in. But Jamal, that's politically would be the easiest thing for the Biden administration to do. There continues to be a life-threatening siege in Gaza. The Israeli military and security forces continue to target, kill, and imprison Palestinian children. What could be an easier political play than the Biden-Harris administration getting the Israelis to end the siege and stop killing Palestinian children? To most human beings, to most people, that seems like a slam dunk politically. Nobody would argue with that. But I I don't believe that's going to be on the Biden-Harris agenda anytime in the foreseeable future. They have the pandemic, they have e- economic crises, and they have the integrity of the you know, fundamental democratic processes within the United States that they have to try to undo from four years of uh, trying to destroy it. I'm not as convinced as I, I don't know if Huawei is that that's convinced um, about it, but I just don't see the easiest part of what the Biden administration could do in terms of just children in Palestine changing at all. Well, uh, I guess we'll have to give uh, give them the benefit of the doubt and wait and see. Uh, you know what's going to happen. I. 
We can go by what happened during the Obama administration, which um, actually Huawei herself talked about that wasn't uh, something spectacular. It was actually no, it very was destructive. Bad. It was very destructive. Yeah, and and so is that going to change now? We don't know. Uh, I think the important thing is to make sure to keep the pressure on the administration to make sure that they start, uh, you know, it's not, I'm not saying to be pro-Palestinian or pro-this or pro-that, but at least have some balance in their policies when it comes to the Israeli occupation and also pay attention to the progressive agenda in the party because we know the progressives in the party, that's not what they want, and and then hopefully try to bring them, um, you know, to the table and and address their, uh, you know, issues. You're 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 a little bit more optimistic than I am, Jamal, about this because I have such little expectation that, and I'll use your word of any kind of balance. Um, you know, we've talked about this so many times about Biden being a proud Zionist despite his Catholic Christian faith. And, um, you know, Kamala Harris herself has kind of a mixed picture when it comes to Palestine anyways. She's also the candidate, just to remind our viewers and our listeners, who secretly got, you know, taken into an APAC meeting last year because she didn't want to be seen by progressives as uh, kowtowing to APAC. So I guess I'm less optimistic. I, you know, the Israelis still haven't purchased enough COVID vaccine for Palestinians you know, I and they may never will, and they may never will. So this is another form of medical ethnic, medically induced ethnic cleansing that, tragically, lots of Palestinians are going to be infected with the COVID uh, virus and are going to suffer really dire consequences in Gaza, West Bank, and in 1948. So, I, I remain pretty pessimistic about about the Biden-Harris administration when it comes to this, because I'm not convinced that they're going to be ready to spend any of their political capital supporting any kind of equality or evenness when it comes to Palestine. Well, I, like I said before, we have to wait and see. And uh, also, just remember one thing, Biden would not have won without the prog progressives, without the work of uh, the likes of Bernie Sanders and his supporters. So I hope the Democrats don't make the same mistake they've made during, you know, like when Hillary Clinton ran and so forth. And and even before that, and ignore the progressive movement. Because if you look at the squad, for example, to just use that as an example, those are important issues for their constituencies. Our foreign policy, our uh, this militaristic attitude and spending billions of dollars and trillions of dollars on the military and giving billions of dollars to Israel on in military aid uh, while Israel continues to violate human rights. I don't know how this will play. So hopefully that's what the balance I'm talking about. I'm not being very optimistic. I'm trying to kind of shift a little bit, the pendulum a little bit. Hopefully this will shift because hopefully they have learned their lesson from 2016 and actually learned their lesson from 2020 because from 2020 because it was a close call. At, really the end of, at the end of the day, Donald Trump got 75 million votes, 75 million people 
60% or more of them say Good. that he still won the election. Yeah, and let's not forget, Jamal, that the Democrats lost seats in the Congress, so in the House. So let, let's, you know, we, we don't know what's going to happen in Georgia because we still have those two Senate seats that are up for grabs. It's, it's kind of neck and neck right now. We don't know what's going to happen. We, there's a number of seats in congressional districts that were lost by Democrats to Republicans. Even in California, we lost a couple of seats. So the situation may be actually in some ways for a Biden administration. And Biden, as you know, Jamal, prides himself on reaching deals, cutting deals, work crossing the aisle. So already we're beginning to see some anxiety among progressives about being left behind. So if you look at his cabinet picks, who's the most progressive person he's picked, you know, in terms of his cabinet? It's not that great. I mean, people are going to say, Pete, Pete Buttigieg, Pete. yeah, I mean, but he's not uh, progressive. He's the first uh, LGBTQ. Yeah, but his politics are not progressive. Selected as uh, right. secretary of uh, transportation. So yeah, which is which is really great for the LGBTQ community. It's really great in terms of you know that that particular you know uh, barrier being broken. But let let's be very clear. Pete is a moderate Democrat. To call him a progressive would be a mistake, especially on Palestine. Well, that's, we'll, we'll have a lot to talk about, <laughs> about this. Uh, you're listening to Arab Talk on KPO San Francisco 89.5 FM. And just uh, we want to shift gears here a little bit. And uh, today, many people probably don't know that, but it's uh, the 10-year anniversary for really the start of the Tunisian uh, revolution. That's kind of right. The, the beginning of the, what, or what led to the Tunisian revolution. On this date, uh, December 17, 2010, wow. uh, Tariq al-Tayyib Muhammad Bouazizi, that's his full name, he was a uh, Tunisian street vendor who set himself on fire and this became the catalyst, basically, for the Tunisian Revolution and the wider uh, so-called Arab Spring against uh, these despotic rulers and different regimes. His self-immolation was in response to the confiscation of his uh, cart, his wares, right. and, and the harassment and humiliation inflicted on him by a municipal uh, official. So, uh, 10 years to this day. I, I can't believe it's been 10 years, Jamal. It just seems like it was yesterday. And I don't know if our viewers and listeners remember this. You were there on the first of the year. You were one of the first uh, international journalists on the ground after that all broke. That's right. Arrived in uh, Tunis, uh, the capital, Tunisia's capital, right on January 1st, 2011. And the news was all over about, of course, it still was very fresh. Right. And, uh, you know, the, you could feel the simmering in the atmosphere, uh, Jess. Um, and demonstrations every single day. I think the first thing that struck me, kind of like it was right in my face, because, you know, I wrote an article about this. I still remember I have very vivid memories when you drive from the airport to your hotel, 
And everywhere in Tunis, there are these huge pictures of uh, the rulers, Zain al-Din and Abidin Ben Ali. It's kind of, uh, you know, uh, very, uh, well, I would, like almost like Soviet era, huge, gigantic billboards, you know. Here is Zain al-Din Abidin waving goodbye to you. Here is he welcoming you. Here is <laughs> shaking hands with a student. You know, he's like the father, kind of like the father the father figure, and I know you can't talk anything bad about him. People will be like talking, but it's like they lower their voice. It's all in whisper. Right. And the second day I got, I got out, I, you know, I was uh, jet lagged, got up very early, had my breakfast, went for a walk just about half a block from my hotel. So I still remember it's called the Golden Tulip Hotel. <laughs> And <laughs> there are actually two locations, one in Tunis in downtown, the other one is in La Marsa on the water. I stayed in both of them, by the way. I saw this kid about maybe 12, 13, preteen. I don't think even he was a teenager. He went to one of these billboards and ripped, started ripping wow. it. Yeah, wow. defacing it. And there were two cops just looking at him, didn't do anything. Wow. And that's when it clicked. I said, the cops didn't dare even. They didn't want to do anything. And this is, no one would have dared to just do this. And people were passers-by. Then later on, others joined in. So there was this whole kind of big party of defacing the picture of Zainuddin Abidin just around the corner from one of their major hotels. Just around the corner, actually, it's not too far from the big mosque, the central, you know, that's the whole, right. just people were ignoring. And and I said, uh, well, you know, this is it. And this is what's going to happen. And of course, you know, I stayed there. I went back. I also was, even even after they got rid of Zeridin Abedim, which I still remember that day, he stepped down on the 14th of January. So it took two weeks, fled to Saudi Arabia, never came is. back. Yeah, where he still is. He died. Oh, that's right. Yeah. He recently, he recently died, but uh, after he left, no one heard from him or he from did, his he, wife. He just his, dropped his, out. His yeah. wife and children, yeah. He, he, he went and hid. Uh, he was a, uh, a guest of the House of Saud in Saudi Arabia because, you know, they think alike. They gave him, you know... I mean, that's what got him kind of off the hook because he stole millions of dollars uh, from the country, billions maybe. And, and uh, you know, the government, uh, subsequent governments, they never really went after him, you know, because something like this, you need, you need that person to be extradited. But I think it's very important uh, to remember this day because this is just to show you the balance in the Middle East that it just can be set in a whole revolution by one action. Right. How delicate the situation that you had. One street vendor right. who was expressing his frustration and anger about the regime. Right. And then people forget, we talk about the Arab Spring. Arab Spring. Remember from 2010 onwards, up till recently, every single thing that happened in the Middle East had some connection to the Arab Spring. We still talk about Syria now. That has a connection to the Arab Spring. What's happening in Yemen, that also has a connection to the Arab Spring. And of course, we know 
um, you know, after Tunisia, we got Egypt, getting rid of the Mubarak regime, Gaddafi, Syria still ongoing, uh, Ali Saleh in Yemen also, um, they got, in, got rid of him and, 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 and eventually he was killed. Gaddafi but, was, was killed. But having said all that, Jamal, uh, we also have to face the painful reality that for people in the Arab world in North Africa and in the Gulf, frankly, people on the street, the positive impact of the Arab Spring has yet to be felt in so many ways. I mean, all of those things that you just described in terms of getting rid of the despotic leaders uh, is great. But exchanging Mubarak for al-Sisi isn't such a great deal. And when you think about what's happening to people and what's happening to people on the streets and economically, maybe it's too strong to say that the Arab Spring failed, but it failed to deliver the promises to the bulk of the people in the Arab world. We still have a long way to go in terms of political and economic uh, equity and equality in the region. Well, uh, definitely, just I mean, the Arab Spring can be examined and re-examined many times. I mean, this is now a major, major debate. I go back to Tunisia because I think Tunisia is the success part. Exactly. Maybe not, not 100% successful. But, but better than any other country. But better than any other. By they far. did not resort to asking NATO to interfere like mm-hmm. in, you know, in Libya. Right. They... they managed to fend off the Daesh-type uh, people like uh, that descended on, on Syria uh, or create a civil war uh, or getting, uh, you know, both not only a civil war, but also getting attacked by another country like what's happening in Yemen, Saudi Arabia, attacking attacking Yemen. They kept it pretty much to themselves. There, there's. I can talk a lot about this, uh, and and I know the influence of the Tunisian diaspora when they came, the influence right. of the Islamists. And believe right. me, a lot of players tried to interfere. From I mean, when I talk about players, from the outside, right. but Tunisia remained intact. Aside well, from they had some terror attacks, they had sure. uh, issues. They've managed to go through elections, and even after the fall of Ben Ali, I was actually when he when uh, Ganucci was uh, uh, became uh, uh, prime minister, and the people went in in the streets, basically, uh, you know, demonstrating again in 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 the area uh, Al Qasaba or the Kasbah area. Uh, people went out there in 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 the hundreds and thousands. And got rid of him, so so their their voices were heard. Right, and and you know just to be just to be really direct about it, Jamal. You know, Tunisia is a is a functioning state. We have how many failed states in the Arab world in North Africa right now? I mean, the list is not a short list after the Arab Spring. You know, there continue to be. Not only multiple failed states, but states that are run by, you know, despots and with lots of oppression. I mean, I agree with you completely. Despite all the difficulties, the way the Tunisians handled everything and managed everything, they they by far are surpassing the wildest dreams of a positive outcome from the 
from the Arab Spring, especially when you look at what what happened in all the other you know states. Tunisia's well, and the other the other examples then, if if we talk about them, the 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 Arab Spring or the revolutions got hijacked. Okay, so that's what happened outside Tunisia. Tunisia was a popular uprising that succeeded, and then it moved on into into Egypt and other places. In Egypt, actually, it succeeded initially, getting rid of Mubarak. Then it took a year or so to bring back the Ancien regime, the old regime, but worse. which is which is the military and represented yeah, by Sisi. So yeah. they did a whole 180. In in Libya, the interference from all these foreign countries, from, by the way, Gulf states arming the Zentan troops and so forth, the Zentan militias, to NATO uh, being actively engaged, and France played a very, very dirty role there. And basically, they've turned it into a failed state. That's what, this is the situation. And then, of course, everyone descended on Syria. <laughs> you know, they, 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 um, and that's actually a remnant of, uh, or a byproduct of the invasion of Iraq because uh, most of these fighters entered from Iraq and Turkey uh, because it was just a porous uh, border and all these uh, mercenaries. So different, different outcomes happened, but we cannot ignore the Tunisian uh, revolution. We cannot ignore its impact and we cannot ignore the impact of one person Tariq Al-Tayyib Muhammad Bouazizi. You know, Jamal, that's extremely well said, and we can only hope that there will be many uh, Bouazizis, you know, arising from the failed and semi-failed states of the Arab world in the Gulf. So just we have a few minutes left, and every week we try to update our listeners about what's happening around us. I'm sure a lot of people, especially in California, COVID, I think yesterday set another record, a daily record. Yeah, it's over 35,000 new cases in California, Jamal. And and also in deaths. Deaths, well over 3,000 deaths, yeah. And it's at the same time, uh, healthcare workers have been receiving their first uh, dose dosage of uh, the vaccine. So where are we at? I mean, here is kind of like good news, bad news. The well, good news you know, is the vaccine is there with some, right. I read some people who got some allergies and reactions, but at least this is the good news. And uh, we're back in lockdown. Uh, well, yeah, we, uh, all the we, counties around us now back in lockdown. Uh, we you are know, you can't eat outside and so forth. Yeah, we we are in complete lockdown right now in Northern California in the Bay Area, Jamal, and in the entire, virtually ninety five percent of the state of California is in in uh, is in home lockdown. Uh, you're not allowed to leave home unless you have you go to work or you're getting food or. You have something to be out for. Otherwise, they're encouraging people to stay inside. So I think you put it very well, Jamal. There's good news and bad news. Um, unfortunately, the bad news continues to outweigh the good news. On the good news side, you have the Pfizer vaccine, which is beginning to roll out. And with 95% you know, effective rate is you know, fantastic. It is, um, it's like a... Uh, 
it's a medical miracle that we got this effective of a vaccine so quickly. Moderna is going to get approved probably this week. It's also about 95% effective. So that's fantastic news. The bad news is getting it to over 300 million Americans in a relatively short time and getting people in the United States, getting Americans and anyone else who's here to take the vaccine, this is going to be the potential bad news. I read a statistic that anywhere from 45 to 55 percent of people don't feel ready, comfortable or uh, trust that the vaccine is going to be safe for them. And because we need between 75 and 85 percent of people to be vaccinated to get the beneficial effect from the vaccine, I'm afraid, Jamal, that this is going, I mean, people are getting lots of optimistic uh, scenarios. Oh, we'll be back by the end of the first quarter. We'll have normal life in the second quarter. I don't see it. I see this carrying on for the, for the bulk of 2021 until 75 to 85% of people take the vaccine. And even then, Jamal, we'll still have to be wearing masks for the most part up through the fall. So it's raging out of control in California. It's raging out of control in the rest of the United States. Europe right now, as we speak, uh, Macron was died, you know, got infected with the uh, COVID, you know, uh, virus. Germany, France, Italy, the bulk of Europe is on 100% lockdown. I mean, it's even perhaps a bigger lockdown than we have here in the United States. So on the bad news side, Jamal, unfortunately, for the next month or two, we're going to be seeing cases rise. We're going to see people dying, and we're 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 in for a really difficult and uh, very problematic uh, future, unfortunately. So the message is still to hunker down, wear, a wear mask. your mask, practice social distancing, wash, wash your, your hands. hands. Hasn't changed. It it hasn't so what, changed. So what would be my number for uh, getting the vaccine? Yes. <laughs> well, unfortunately, Jamal, you are in good health. I'm joking. It's good that you're in good health. But because of where you are in terms of the distribution of health, age, and all of the demographics, you're not going to be the first in line. In no, no, fact, I think, I, think, I think I'll be like after 250 million people I or think, something like that. I think you and I can basically expect to get it sometime in at the best case scenario for us, April, May, June, probably May, June. That's the best case scenario. You know, the United States turned down a request, an offer rather, by Pfizer to buy another 100 million doses. And the United States turned it down, betting that there would be other, you know, candidates out there ready to go. They're not outside of Moderna. And, um, you know, those doses now are spoken for by other countries. So I don't even think, you know, we're a country of about 340 million people. Mm -hmm. You need 75 to 80 percent of the people vaccinated. So we are going to need 600 million doses, Jamal, because for the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, you have to get two. You need an initial shot and then a booster. Wow. How are we going to get 600 million doses right now when we we've we can't even scratch the surface of that. So people have to stay safe. They have to hunker down. You have to wear your mask. You have to wash your hands and be very careful.
Well, on that note, uh, we're coming to another end of, of Arab Talk. Go to our website, arabtalkradio.com to download all our episodes and we will talk to you next week. See you next week. <laughs>